Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to talk about the different honeybee races and why they might be of interest to you as a beekeeper. But first just a couple of homestead updates. Um, in kind of personal news I had mentioned in the last episode that I had had some skin biopsies sent off and one of them came back as precancerous and I had to have an excision of the area well that went very well um, and my doctor was able to confirm clean margin so I'm not gonna need any further treatment which is great I also had a weird bump that was a possible case of basal cell carcinoma so that also went off to biopsy and I recently found out that it is not carcinoma it is just a weird little bump um, and it's completely benign so I'm really glad about that and I'm having my stitches out uh, tomorrow which is Wednesday so that's all good news and um, I thought I'd just mention real quick as a little PSA that if you've been considering having any of your moles looked at I do recommend that you do um, I've been putting it off for a long time so when I finally got around to it I probably shouldn't have been super surprised that I had some uh, some weirdness come up so I do recommend that you go and you get checked out I'd also like to apologize in advance if you hear any weird bumps or odd microphone sounds my Whippet Chappie has decided that he is going to camp out underneath my desk today. I have actually started this recording a couple of times um, because of him banging around underneath, but um, he seems to have settled down for now and hopefully um, it will stay that way, but he has been very close to me lately, which is very sweet. Uh, he might be sticking so close to me because, um, as I mentioned last episode, my seasonal affective disorder has kind of smacked me in the face a little bit. Last week I was sleeping a lot and I have kind of averaged in the last couple of weeks having one day where I get up, I do my chores, I go right back to bed and I basically sleep all day. And yeah, it's not great and I, I do my best to be motivated and get up and exercise and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, I'd rather deal with that kind of exhaustion and apathy over you know, a full depressive episode with like self-recrimination and self-hatred and all that kind of stuff. So it is what it is. Um, this week, I'm feeling very proud that I have not been napping during the day and I'm back to a regular schedule, but we'll see how things go. Um, as for farm life, I thought my chickens were done molting, but Bobby, who's my Easter egger, looked like she just exploded one day. I just, I walked in, she's super raggedy and her pin feathers are all coming in, which they come in um, because they're kind of wrapped in a like a, a sheath that's very pale. It looks like she's gone gray all over her head. Um, but compared to my other chickens, when they get to that phase, she's eating super well. She seems really happy in herself. And um, she just seems to be getting through it absolutely fine. So I haven't needed to do anything extra with her. Um, I'm also very pleased to say that we're getting the electricity sorted out there so I can finally get some heated buckets, which means no more running out constantly with fresh water. It also means that when we go away um, in the colder months, I, if I needed to, I don't have to have someone check on them every day. I could do, you know, every other day or every couple of days, depending on what I'm comfortable with. So that is great. And it's going to save me a lot of time and anxiety. My special needs girls, the ones I rescued from a animal control in Cleveland, who still aren't named, and I really need to come up with names for them. If anyone has any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, well, they're looking really, really good after their molt, and uh, they finally have filled out. And one in particular is super hefty now, which is wonderful. Um, I think that's also the girl who has been giving me an egg every day, even through her molt and all the terrible weather that we've been having. So she's my little champ, my little A-star hen right now. Um, and I'm really delighted because it was getting to the point with them that I was starting to worry that either I needed to do an additional worming or they were going to need some kind of special food because they just weren't gaining the weight. But it's good to see that now, finally, with a little time, they're, um, they're like proper little chickens now. 
Uh, old lady Agatha, she's doing well. Um, I've been cutting back on her medication. I wanted to see how she would do on an every other day schedule, in part because she's really been fighting me about taking it. And to me, that kind of indicates that she's feeling well enough to do so. And the every other day schedule has actually worked super well for her. I haven't noticed a decrease in mobility or an increase of symptoms of pain. So we're going to stick with that for now and see how things go. As for the bees, well, you know, it's winter um, and we have had some very cold weather, so uh, I do not get to see them. And I think my anxiety about how they're doing is starting to manifest in other ways. So I've been having consistent bad dreams. Um, I had one dream where uh, some bears somehow got to my hives and completely destroyed them. And I had another dream that some kind of pushy neighbor moved in, decided that that was part of his land and just destroyed my hives without talking to me. Um, so you can see a theme here and it's not very fun. Um, and I, I ended up actually running out with the stethoscope that I'd bought to try and listen to my bees and I didn't hear anything. And I don't believe that they're all dead. I think the problem was is that um, I have to kind of slide the stethoscope between the Bee Cozy Wrap and the Hive. And the noise of the Bee Cozy Wrap resting against a stethoscope or my hand is interfering with what I can hear inside the hive. And I also suspect that because they're so tightly clustered in there and hopefully they still have full frames of food that I'm just not hearing them through that. So I'm gonna try again um, at some point, maybe later in the winter when theoretically they'll be higher in the hive and therefore a little easier for me to reach and hear. But we're gonna have to see because um, it's looking like this is not gonna be the really reliable answer to are they still alive that I was hoping it would be but oh well you live and learn right now I know last episode I mentioned that I was probably going to do this week's episode on quail and it is something that I've been meaning to discuss and actually meaning to look into quail was something that um you know I have a number of books about and I'm very interested in them but I kind of ruled them out as I got more involved with my chickens and then beekeeping but I decided to skip the quail um and instead do honeybee races and part of the reason I chose this is that you know last episode I talked about Saskatraz honeybee which is a kind of hybrid bee And I kind of offhandedly mentioned, um, you know, something along the lines of if you're a beekeeper, you're probably familiar with carniolans, Italians, uh, Russian bees, things like that. And I realized that I've never actually spent much time, you know, looking at those honeybees and sort of finding out for myself what's good about them, what isn't, why might they appeal to people, why not. Uh, My neighbour who's a beekeeper talks to me a lot about the carniolan bees. He really likes them because they tend to be darker in colour. So he feels like he can identify them more in his hives. And he loves that and he's really impressed with them. And some people in the beekeeping world will have a race of honeybee, like the carniolans or the Italians, that are like their race. And it's their preference to only have honeybees that come from dedicated Italian or carniolan carniolan lines and things like that so I thought this would be something that would be good for me to read and then I figured I would share it with everyone as well so what do I mean when I talk about a race of honeybees and when I was looking into this I came across a website called beesforlife.org and they kind of summed this up nicely they say A group possessing certain characteristics is called a race, which is relatively clear. Wikipedia, on the other hand, is a bit more technical and thus a little more confusing. From the Wikipedia article on honeybee races, quote, a honeybee race would be an informal rank in the taxonomic hierarchy below the level of subspecies, end quote. Now, 
to make it a little bit more confusing, you might also see the um, beekeepers referring to various races of honeybees as lines instead. And then you might also see a term which is strain. But to give you a kind of clearer idea here, line and race is used interchangeably and it refers to the same thing. Whereas in beekeeping, a strain is often used to describe very minor differences within a race of bees. So think of it like this. You have the honeybee, Apis mellifera, which is our standard European slash Western honeybee. And from this bee, you can produce races or lines, bees that are still part of Apis mellifera, but have enough identifiable and generationally repeatable characteristics that they've been identified as their own type or race. And I like to think of this as much like how all domesticated dogs are Canis lupus familiaris, but we then categorize all domestic dogs into groups like herding dogs, sight hounds, toy dogs, etc. And then from those groups, we differentiate again into individual breeds, which I see as kind of comparable to a bee strain. I know it's a little confusing, but really all you need to know is that all the different bee races or lines that I'm going to discuss today have been created from or evolved naturally from Apis mellifera, the European slash Western honeybee. And for those races that developed naturally, geographic isolation seems to have played a large part in that. So basically, as Apis mellifera adjusted to a specific isolated area and its environment, which is everything from arid locations to tropical, certain characteristics began to predominate as natural selection weeded out the survivors. Over enough time, um, these characteristics became distinct enough from the parent species to be identifiable as a unique race or line. And these characteristics can include things such as body size, size of specific anatomical features, hair coverage, body color, body pattern, wing differences, and behaviors. There's also some honeybee races that have been created, I guess you could say artificially, by careful breeding and management by humans. And I'll be discussing both types today, those that evolved naturally and those that have been created. So what are the honeybee races? There are actually quite a few but I'm going to stick to the most well-known or accessible like races that you can purchase and that you will hear about as a beekeeper and these are the Italian Apis mellifera ligustica, the Carniolan Apis mellifera carnica, the Caucasian, Apis mellifera, mellifera caucasia, the German slash black, Apis mellifera mellifera, and the African, Apis mellifera scutellata, and its various hybrids. There's also um, three well-known hybrids, which I'd like to discuss today. And the hybrid in this context is two or more races of honeybees combined to create a distinct bee. And the three I want to talk about today are the Buckfast, Apis mellifera Buckfast, the Russian, Apis mellifera, which is basically just the European honeybee, and the Cordovan, Apis mellifera ligustica, which is the Italian bee. And then kind of separate from this, but which still deserve a mention, are feral slash wild bees. So We've talked about these before. I'm sure you come across them all the time in the sense that these are the bees that you would be catching as swarms. Um, and they are bees that live in the wild and have probably come from escaped swarms or unmanaged hives. 
and have been living for an unknown period of time in your local area. Um, This group of bees is like hugely genetically diverse and tend to be well acclimated to their particular environment. And um, they're part of why I think it's great to catch a swarm or two if you can and uh, see how they do for you um, in uh, managed conditions because it's a great way of, um, you know, adding new genetics to your colonies and also just seeing the differences in um, maybe a swarm and maybe a known race of bee. And then again, there's what I've called previously mutt bees, which are just a big genetic muddle of various races, possibly mixed with feral bees. There's really no way of identifying what genetic lines are involved in those bees. And those are the kind of bees that I have. And as I've said before, there's nothing wrong with mutt bees. Mutt bees are often the product of um, local to you breeding programs. So if you're getting a nucleus colony, and you're not getting it from someone who is dedicated to specific races or lines of honeybees, probably what you're getting is mutt bees, a mix of different genetics that have ended up producing bees that that particular keeper has found to be good survivors for the area and have produced good productive queens. So let's get back to the topic of honeybee races and I'm going to start with the Italian honeybee, Apis mellifera ligustica. So this bee is originally from the Apennine Peninsula in Italy and this area is set apart from the rest of Europe by the Alps and is almost entirely surrounded by the sea, which kept this race separate from other races and lines of honeybee and thus allowed them to develop characteristics that were most suited to their specific environment. They were first introduced to America in 1859 and quickly replaced the German black bee, which was the first bee brought over by colonists. The Italian honeybee is now the dominant or most popular honeybee race in North America and Europe. And I wanted to give kind of an overview of their appearance. But before I do, I wanted to say that When I was researching this topic, I found that all the articles and all the books give um, give examples of the common appearance or coloring for each race of honeybee. But when looking at the pictures, I honestly don't see a big difference between them. So I don't know how useful these descriptions really are for the hobbyist beekeeper or someone who's just learning about the different kind of honeybee races. But I want to include them because it is considered part of their key differences. And I also suspect that people with better eyes than myself or people with more experience will be able to see these features that I'm talking about. So as I go through, I will discuss the appearance of each race of bee. Now for the Italian bee, their appearance is said to be yellow-brown, lightly coloured, with black bands ranging in number from three to five. And um, it's my understanding that some breeders have been selecting queens that have a red gold coloration and you'll sometimes see those being sold as golden Italians. I think of the Italian honeybee as kind of the archetypical bee. What comes to mind when you think about a honeybee? Now, what are some pros of the Italians? Well, they're very gentle and they're not overly defensive. They overwinter relatively well, they're strong foragers, have a low tendency to swarm, have good honey production, and they tend to cap their honey with a white wax, which is considered very attractive to buyers of cut comb. And I also saw that it's been said that they make less propolis than other races, so it's not as sticky to get into the hive. Some cons of the Italian bee are that they don't tend to cluster as tightly in winter as some of the other races, which basically means that they consume a lot more of their food stores. They have weaker defences than other races or lines in terms of uh, hive defences. And they have an extended brood rearing period, which means that there's a lot more honey that's being eaten during the fall. And as a result, this can trigger swarming. So basically, if they consume all their honey, they run out of stores and they're not bringing enough 
new nectar in to create more honey they might swarm to a smaller location that they feel that they can get through winter more safely with Um, and also what was interesting is that Italians are considered to be quite bad when it comes to robbing other hives so if you have weaker hives near your Italian hives they're going to get in there and they're going to steal their honey Now, beesforlife.org, which I mentioned earlier, refers to the Italian honeybee as notorious kleptoparasites, which is one of my new favourite terms. The next honeybee race that I'm going to discuss is the Carniolan, Apis mellifera carnica. This honeybee is native to an isolated region high in the Australian Alps and Danube Valley, and it's found across Eastern Europe, including Hungary, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. Beesforlife.org has this to say about them. There seems to exist different races of carniolan bees, bannets, dalmatian, and other bees that resemble carniolans, which may be hybrids of the true carniolan race. Which I thought was pretty interesting. And I didn't find much more information about that either. Now, according to my bee biology textbook, there are some who consider the Carniolans to just be a variant of the Italian honeybee, and they don't really believe that it's unique enough to be its own race. So that's kind of interesting. In terms of appearance, the Carniolan honeybee is dark grey and dark brown to nearly black with brown spots or bands on the abdomen and they're slightly smaller than the other races of honeybee. Pros include the fact that they are very docile, they have good honey production, an explosive spring buildup, they are excellent foragers, they are excellent overwinterers, And in fact, it's said that they tend to overwinter in much smaller numbers, which means that they cluster very tightly. And as a result, they can serve their food stores. They tend to have fewer disease problems than other races. So they're quite hardy. They're excellent wax builders. They have a low tendency to rob. They make very little propolis. And so they're less sticky, basically. And um, growing interest in this race has... um, been developing over time particularly since varroa mites became such an issue for us because of the fact that they seem to be disease resistant so this basically means that because of this increase in interest the carniolan honeybee is going to be a little easier to find within the u.s than maybe some of the other races the cons for this bee are that they're actually known to swarm quite readily although there are breeders who are selecting lines to try and um, basically breed against this trait the other major con is that this carniolan race was introduced to the u.s in the 1800s but since then what is being referred to as genetic purity has decreased rapidly so basically there's no way for us to say that the carniolans that exist in the u.s today are genetically identical to their um, ancestors we we just don't know and I don't know if that really matters I'm my assumption is that as long as you're aware of that fact if you're still creating carniolan bees because you like all the positives then what's what's the harm right so the next honeybee race that you are likely to come across is the caucasian which is Apis mellifera caucasia. And I wanted to do a quick note here that many books and articles have this bee listed, um, have the scientific name listed as Apis mellifera caucasica, but this is a misspelling that just kind of gets repeated. It, As far as I can tell, the official scientific name is caucasia. Now this bee originates in the high valleys of the Caucasus Mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas and is found in eastern Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan. It was introduced to the US in the late 1800s and early 1900s but no pure stock exists here today. So the appearance of this bee is dark in colour with grey body hairs pros are listed as them being gentle and calm but the cons outweigh the pros they're prone to colony drift and robbing behavior they overwinter poorly 
they have a slow buildup in spring. They create a lot of propolis. So they are very sticky and it's hard to get into the hive. And they're prone to nosema, according to one website I found, which is bees.caes.uga.edu. And I will link to that in the um, episode description. Uh, because I didn't find a lot more information about that. I just saw that they said they're prone to nosema fungus. And this leads me on to the German or black bee. And I've seen this written as just black bee, just German bee. And some people write it as the German black bee. So you might come across all those terms. And the science name, scientific name for this is Apis mellifera mellifera. Now, this bee is very interesting. And the reason why is that the German bee is originally from Northern Europe, but it's the very first honeybee that was brought to North America in the early 1600s by Virginia and Massachusetts settlers. They were so popular that as the number of immigrant settlers spread across the US, they went with them. And they actually were called the white man's fly by Native Americans because there were so many of them and they were adapting so well to America. Sadly, however, it turns out that the German black bee are very susceptible to European fowl brood. And so when this nasty bacterial disease started to spread throughout the US in the early 1900s, many colonies were wiped out and it was quite a devastating blow to beekeepers at the time. Not very long after this, the Italian honeybee grew in popularity. And as a result, the German bee was quickly replaced by their Italian cousins. So now the German bee is not at all common today. And what does exist of it is unlikely to be... um, closely related genetically to the original German bees. The German bees were known to be defensive and quite nervous when approaching the hive, so it's not entirely surprising that they ended up being replaced by the friendlier and much hardier Italian honeybee. I suspect that even if European fowl brood hadn't ended up being so devastating to the population, that Italian bees would likely have replaced them anyway, just as Americans got to know the fact that this Italian honeybee is so docile, so calm to work with, and also a wonderful producer of honey. The next bee that we're going to talk about is the African bee, Apis mellifera scutellata, and its various hybrids. And this is a pretty infamous honeybee that I suspect most people have heard about. It's sometimes referred to as a killer bee. So this infamous honeybee is native to Eastern Africa and it's found across the region from Ethiopia to South Africa. It ended up in America through kind of a roundabout way. So basically, and you might have come across this story before, in the 1950s, biologist Warwick E. Kerr was attempting to breed the African bee to the European honeybee in an attempt to make a more hardy and productive honeybee. And he based his um, lab and his area of research in Brazil. Sadly, in 1957, 26 of his swarms escaped from their quarantine facility, completely vanishing into the Brazilian wild. And of these swarms, it's said that all 26 had pure African queens. And the reason I mention this is that it seems like it's not agreed upon about exactly what kind of genetics we're dealing with in terms of the bees that ended up spreading. And by this, what I mean is, like, for instance, in my bee biology book, they state, well, the authors state that because the queens that were released were pure African queens, the bees that went on to propagate the area are pure African bees, Apis mellifera scutellatus, not hybrids. But when reading about this transmission process of the African bees, most sources will say that these bees are Africanized, which basically refers to a hybrid. It's any kind of bee that has mated with an African bee to release or to produce um, 
a hybrid bee that has the African bee traits of aggression. So I'm not really sure what's true and what isn't. Um, It seems like some people believe that um, these bees are close, more closely related to pure African bees than they are to the hybrids. But either way, what's important to understand is just how quickly this mistake caused just a huge change in these regions and how we now have to handle our honeybees. So basically what happened is, so 1957, these 26 swarms escape and they just disappear into Brazil and they just start spreading like wildfire. So populations of African or Africanized bees were then discovered in Paraguay in 1964, northern Argentina in 1965, and Bolivia in 1967. And this means the populations were spreading of a speed of about 150 to 250 miles per year. That is madness. Now at the time, It was hoped that the Amazon Basin region would slow down this spread. And it kind of did, but not enough. And soon it was confirmed that the African bees had crossed this region in 1971. By 1975 to 1980, they'd spread to Venezuela. And the first confirmed Africanized bee swarm was found in Panama in 1982, Mexico in 1986 and the US in 1990. Now you might sometimes see articles or books saying that um, the Africanized bees reached the US in 1985, not 1990. And this is because there were two areas of transmission. The reference to them reaching the US in 1990 is them coming into America through Mexico. There was a swarm found in the um, in California in 1985, but it was determined that it had um, basically hitched a ride in oil drilling pipes that had been shipped in from South America. So it wasn't a direct form of transmission. Um, and so I wanted to just make that difference here because historically, I mean, this kind of is important historically to know that it took them until 1990 to cross over into the US as opposed to just hitching a ride. So in 2005, Africanized honeybees reached Florida. And as of 2013, they occupy all southern border states apart from Alabama. And it was hoped that due to the limited number of African queen bees, because remember, it was 26 of them that originally escaped in Brazil, that eventually the bees would reach kind of a genetic bottleneck, which would lead to their eventual decline. However, as of today, they are still going strong. And it does seem that part of this is because they will readily hybridize with other Apis mellifera uh, subspecies and races. Now, part of why it's so distressing that these bees spread like they did is not just because, I mean, technically they're invasive, they're not natural to the area, but also because they outcompete other honeybees and they are genetically dominant. So when they hybridize with, let's say, just your Italian honeybee, those what's produced the hybrids end up being very very aggressive like the african bees and obviously this is not at all desirable to us as beekeepers so what africanized bees are known for is they will um they're kind of unique in that in your average honeybee um hive you can usually expect that they're not going to get upset with you unless you are opening up the hive or working inside the hive or doing something kind of directly disruptive to their home. But African bees and therefore Africanized bees actually will patrol a large perimeter around their hive and anything that comes into that perimeter is attacked. And what will happen is they will attack and they will also alert the colony that they are attacking and they need backup and a huge amount of bees will swarm out to attack this potential threat. They're also known to sting a lot more readily. It's actually said they'll sting 10 times more than other honeybee races. 
they'll chase you up to a quarter mile or 400 meters and they've killed about 1,000 people to date. So it's no surprise that this caused such a huge panic as it was spreading through the countries mentioned. Many states that are in the danger zones will guard against African genetics infiltrating their stock. Um, John at the Hive Jive, which I know I've mentioned before, and it's one of my favorite podcasts, he's talked a little bit about this because he lives in Texas. So if I remember correctly, he's talked about how he has like a rehab bee yard, which is where he brings in swarms. And then he can monitor those... um, bees for African traits and then can requeen with known genetics so that eventually he's rehabbed that hive in that you know as the new queen comes in eventually her genes are going to replace the old genes and before I leave this section of African bees there's one other African bee that I thought was very interesting and I wanted to mention and that is the cape honeybee apis mellifera capensis And this bee is super neat because it's the only honeybee that has workers that are able to lay fertile eggs. They're also parasitical in nature. So what they'll do is the queens will enter the Scatellata, the African honeybee nests, and cuckoo parasitize those colonies by laying their own eggs in the cells until their offspring take over the hive which I just thought was very, very cool. So since we're talking about hybrids, I'd like to move on to my hybrid section of this uh, topic. And there's sort of three hybrid bees that appear to be quite popular. And so those are the ones that I'm going to talk about. The first one is the Buckfast honeybee. And this race was created by Brother Adam of Buckfast Abbey in southwest England. In the 1920s, honeybee colonies across the UK were falling foul of something called acarine disease, which is now suspected to have actually been tracheal mites. And Brother Adams was charged with finding a hardier honeybee. And so he travelled to Europe to speak with many different beekeepers And as a result, he ended up combining a lot of different races of honeybee to come up with what has been called the Buckfast. And there's actually quite a lot of information online about the specific methods he used to create this hybrid. And I definitely recommend looking into it if that's something that you think would be interesting. So the Buckfast bee that he produced is known to be docile and extremely gentle, which makes it easy to work with. Uh, What's really key about this bee, though, is that they do well in the cooler and wetter summers of England. They overwinter well and they have good survival rates when afflicted with tracheal mites. Their appearance is said to be yellow to brown and almost indistinguishable from the European slash Western honeybee. So basically, it looks like your standard bee. Um, As far as I can tell, there are a handful of active breeding programs based in Canada Although it is possible to buy Buckfast queens in the US, even though they're not as common as the other hybrids that I'm about to discuss. So one hybrid bee that I've seen a lot more mention of, and you might have as well, is the Russian bee. And this is a hybrid mix of Apis mellifera caucasia, Apis mellifera ligustica, and Apis mellifera carnica. It originated in the far eastern Primorsky region of Russia, and it appears to have a natural tolerance to varroa and tracheal mites, possibly because it evolved side by side with these parasites, and so they've had longer to adapt to the threat, as opposed to our own bees that, you know, did most of their evolving nowhere near varroa until suddenly we introduced this parasite, and now they just don't know what to do, and they're having a really hard time adjusting. So Russian bees were brought to the U.S. in 1997 by the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, and they did this specifically to research their mite resistance and to breed this trait into current U.S. honeybee stock. So basically, the USDA responded to the problems that varroa mites were causing beekeepers and tried to find a solution. 
And as a result of this, there are now dedicated Russian bee producers. And there's even a certification process which guarantees the genetics of their bees. So basically, you can buy a Russian honeybee and it comes with a certificate that guarantees that genetically, yes, this is the Russian um, honeybee hybrid. It is not, I guess, a knockoff. It is exactly what you want it to be. And this is important if you yourself are looking to add this mite resistance trait to your stock. In terms of appearance, the Russian bee is said to be dark brown to black with paler yellow coloring on their abdomen. Now, what's positive about this bee? Well, they're resistant to parasites, including Varroa, which is why they have been gaining hugely in population in the last couple of years. They overwinter extremely well because they are used to and they evolved with very cold winters. They're weather sensitive. Now, what this means is that they reduce brood production as needed in response to the climate, which means they conserve their food stores and their resources. They're less likely to be robbed because they have very good guard bees. And they also demonstrate hygienic behavior, which are things like being more aware of varroa mites and grooming regularly and therefore knocking varroa mites off themselves. There are some cons to the Russian bee, though. One of them um, is that they actually they tend to have queen cells all the time which is very off-putting to those of us familiar with the European honeybee because if we see a queen cell that means something's going on they're either superseding or they're preparing to swarm or your queen's dead and they're desperately trying to build it you know bring a new queen to life so when we go into a Russian hive and we see that it's filled with queen cells that's going to be a little off-putting and it's going to affect how you manage that hive um Related to this is that they swarm very regularly and a lot more frequently than we're used to. Well, when I say we, I mean beekeepers who are used to the European honeybee. Their brood rearing depends on available forage. So if you're having a bad season where there's not a lot of pollen or not a lot of nectar, you're going to watch this colony start to decline a little as they're going to slow down or even stop brood rearing. It's said that they can be susceptible to the Nosema fungus, so that's something to be aware of. And they're also more aggressive than other races. And this is part of why they are less likely to be robbed, because they're a little bit more aware of what's going on at their hive entrance, and they're a little bit more aware of you when you approach the hive. However, something I found quite interesting is that it's said that they often headbutt as a defensive maneuver instead of just stinging straight away so even though perhaps when you're dealing with russian bees you'll find that there's a lot more of them surrounding you and maybe pinging against your veil it's possible that that you could still get away without a great deal of stings so i thought that was interesting and definitely something to keep in mind and on a personal note this is definitely a bee that i am interested in i'm not currently looking to get Russian bees but it's definitely something that I would like to explore at some point in the future. So my last hybrid that I'd like to discuss is the Cordovan and this this hybrid kind of confused me a little bit because it seems like it's basically just the Italian bee that has been produced to be paler in colour which is sort of what I would refer to in like the reptile world we talk about color morphs which is like it's all the same species but you have line bred them or inbred them to produce specific colors that are then repeatable in future generations so like it started with like albinos that was one of our first color morphs and then we had leukistics and now we have all these ridiculous things like hypofire opals and all this rubbish but the point is, is it's the same snake it's just a different color and cordovans seem to be in that area um and it's actually some stuff that I read it seems to indicate that there are some people who don't even believe that this is really its own race or line and it's basically just an Italian bee but it did come up every time I looked into various popular hybrids so I felt like it still deserved to be discussed 
And basically, as I kind of mentioned, it's known for being much lighter in color. It's very yellow compared to other honeybees. And they're also said to have brown to almost purple colors of heads and legs instead of the standard black or extremely dark brown that we see with other Apis mellifera. Now, some pros of this bee are said to be that they're even more docile than Italians, that they are excellent comb builders, that they're good in warm weather, which is great for people who live in very hot regions or have extremely scorching hot summers. It's also said that their traits can be bred into any race of honeybee, which seems to indicate that they are um, showing dominant genetics in terms of this kind of docility and comb building and weather resistance but I couldn't really find anything else on this Um, and also now this is kind of fun because the queens tend to be so pale in color they're actually easier to spot when doing an inspection so that's pretty good um, because I still struggle sometimes finding my queens some of the cons are that they apparently eat quite a lot over winter so they're going to run through their stores a lot faster and this might mean a bit more careful management of the hives through winter. They're not as hardy in cold and wet climates, which relates back to this needing a lot of food. And apparently they're more prone to robbing than Italians, which as you might remember, are famous for robbing. So that seems like if you have Cordovans around, you want to keep them away from your weak hives. Now, finally, I want to talk about something that I came across when I was reading. And it is the survivor bees. And this is kind of like a bonus section because I think it's important. And I think some of the bees that are kind of categorized as survivor bees are things that you're going to come across when reading, particularly if you're looking into varroa mite resistant bee lines. So this term survivor bee, I got it from Kim Flottam, who talks about them in his book, The Backyard Beekeeper. And by survivor bees, what he means are they are any bee that have been bred for their ability to survive varroa mites. And the goal with a survivor bee line is to produce productive, gentle bees that are easy to work with. They, you know, they overwinter well, they produce a great deal of honey, but they also demonstrate extremely hygienic behavior that's favorable in surviving varroa infestation. Now, these kind of hygienic behaviors include things like leg biting. So you might see some bee lines referred to as leg biters. And these are bees that have been bred to have the trait where they basically bite the legs from the varroa mites, which prevents the mite from spreading and eventually kills it. There's other hygienic behavior like... um, being more sensitive to mites and therefore detecting them early in the cells, quickly removing them. And then also just regular grooming of their own bodies, which dislodges the mites and helps prevent further infestation. Now there's two quite popular survivor bee lines. And one is um, the Varroa Sensitive Hygiene Bee, which you'll sometimes see abbreviated as VSH bees. And these were originally developed by Dr. John Harbour of the USDA Baton Rouge Bee Lab. And the other line is the Minnesota Hygienic Bee, which was developed by Dr. Marla Spivak of the University of Minnesota. Now, currently, there's no certification programs in place for these lines like we have with the Russian bee, which basically just means that the unscrupulous or uninformed queen breeder could sell you bees that they're claiming to have these traits or claiming to be from these lines with no proof of their genetic history. So as a result, basically just be cautious when purchasing queens. Don't be afraid to ask the breeder questions about their stock or how they went through the selection process. Um, I did read that it's hoped that there will be a certification process in place very soon because there's a number of universities that are working on this, as is the USDA. And that's basically it. Those are the primary honeybee races and hybrids. And I hope it was of interest to you. I had always not being dismissive but this had never really captured me I didn't really have a preference about whether I wanted a carniolan or Italian or whatever but as I started this um, topic I actually found that I was getting quite interested in it 
particularly because for some of these races, it's a little wishy-washy. And by this, I mean that it's not entirely clear to me how distinctive they are from some of the other races. So it's very interesting to kind of compile it like this and get to read through it and make my own personal decisions about whether I think any of these races or lines or hybrids are worth purchasing in the future. Um, As I mentioned in my last episode, I was very intrigued by the Saskatraz Honeybee Project and I did in fact go ahead and I ordered a package of them with a Saskatraz Hybrid Queen and I'm very excited to work with that um, bee in the new year. So who knows, maybe I could every single spring get a different kind of bee to work with and track how they do and whether I really do notice the traits that have been mentioned in them that could actually be a really fun project and I'm kind of talking myself into it so yeah I think I'm going to do that I think um depending on how things go each spring I will try a different race or line or hybrid of bee and just track how they progress So as always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. As of the recording date, which is the 17th of December, I have had 251 downloads, which I am amazed by. I am tickled pink and dead chuffed and um, just absolutely thrilled that people are listening and they like it. And uh, I really just appreciate you sticking with me um, up until this, which is episode 10. If you'd like to reach out, send me a comment. Um, If you want to chat to me about something, if you want to, you know, name my Cleveland hens who remain nameless, poor things, you can reach out to me at um, Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram and Facebook, Homestead Hens on Twitter and Tumblr, and Homestead Hens and Honey at gmail.com. Please feel free to reach out anytime. I love hearing from you. I have my website linked in the episode description and that has a list of all the resources that I used to compile this information, including links to various articles and websites for further reading if you're so inclined. My next episode will be sometime in the new year and I'm pretty confident in saying that it's not going to be in two weeks. I will get a January episode up, but please forgive me for moving away from the two-week schedule over the holiday period. Um, I know that with travel and um, the craziness of the holidays that I'm just not going to be able to get back here in two weeks to get something for you, but I will have something in January and I appreciate you bearing with me. And since I didn't get around to talking about quail this week, I think that's very likely to be the main topic, as well as the usual kind of homestead updates and any news that I have from my holiday. I really hope that everyone listening has a very happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas, a happy Giftmas, a blessed solstice, a festive Yule and happy Hanukkah. I really hope you go out and you create some happy memories with friends and family, be them human, feathered, scaled, woolly or furred. Take care of yourselves and I will see you in the new year. I can't wrap my head around the fact that we're going to go into 2020. That just seems like madness and it makes me feel super old. (laughs) So when we go into the new year, I am likely to be drinking a big old glass of champagne so that I don't think about it. And as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Ta-ta.